Hey everybody and welcome into episode 102 of Jake's Take. I am Jake Heller, pleased to be joining you guys once again. So much to talk about and such little time. So this weekend, as you guys know, one of my favorite weekends of the year, the NFL Draft. All the way from Trayvon Walker being selected number one on Thursday night by the Jacksonville Jaguars to Mr. Irrelevant last night. Brock Purdy, the 262nd and final pick by the San Francisco 49ers. Definitely a lot of surprises and going to be going through some of the winners and some of the losers in this NFL draft. And as you can imagine, if you're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan like myself, you have to be extremely fired up. So welcome to this episode of Jake's Take. I am Jake Heller. I appreciate you guys tuning in once again on this beautiful Sunday morning. We will be talking about the NFL Draft, the weekend that was at Talladega Super Speedway, which almost resulted in another Earnhardt going to victory lane at Talladega, Ross Chastain smashing another watermelon the following day, and previewing today's race at Dover Motor Speedway. As you guys know, I just hope that this will not be the last race at Dover Motor Speedway. So let's get right to it. This past Thursday, 8 o'clock Eastern Time, the 2022 NFL Draft was officially open with the Jacksonville Jaguars on the clock once again for the second year in a row with the number one pick. Now, a lot of these mock drafts, when they started to come out in January, initially a lot of them had Evan Neal, offensive tackle from Alabama, going number one overall to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Then sort of as January, February, March, and the majority of April, it seemed like Aiden Hutchinson, defensive end from the Michigan Wolverines, it seemed like he was going to be the consensus number one pick for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And Shad Khan, their owner, it sounded like Shad really wanted the Heisman Trophy finalist to be on his team. But like Josh Manley said when we did our mock draft podcast on Easter Saturday, I have never seen someone's draft stock rise exponentially like Trayvon Walker's did. And I don't understand why, especially when I understand the Georgia Bulldogs being the national champions, how dominant their defense was. But really, Trayvon Walker, he didn't really have that much of a part in it. He didn't even have 10 sacks on the year. And Trent Baalke, former 49ers general manager, now with the 49ers, Trent really, really convinced Shad Khan that we have to go with Trayvon Walker. So that was definitely a very, very head-scratching pick. Now, the Detroit Lions at number two, as expected. Aiden Hutchinson, I know how excited he is going to be to be able to stay in the Motor City with the Detroit Lions. Then at three and four, two of the guys that Johnny Glow was definitely coveting for his Minnesota Vikings, but you sort of knew that they weren't going to be there at 12. But Derek Stingley Jr., third overall to the Texans. Sauce Gardner, fourth overall to the New York Jets. And, I mean, really, both of the New York teams, the Jets and the Giants, man, did they nail their drafts, especially when the Jets, fourth overall, Sauce Gardner, 10th overall, Garrett Wilson, wide receiver out of Ohio State. I was definitely pretty high on him. Then trading back into the first round, 26th overall with the Tennessee Titans and selecting none other than Jermaine Johnson, edge rusher from Florida State. Now, for the other team that they share MetLife Stadium with, the New York Football Giants, to draft Kayvon Thibodeau, fifth overall, when a lot of people felt like Kayvon was going to be maybe the number one pick or at least a top two pick, some character concerns. 
But the Giants definitely nailed their drafts on both sides of the line. The defensive line with Kayvon Thibodeau from Oregon, and then seventh overall with Evan Neal from Alabama. Then with the Carolina Panthers at number six, you know, that was really, if you were a Pittsburgh Steelers fan like myself that wanted Kenny Pickett, that was really the first bullet you were going to have to dodge with the Carolina Panthers at six. But sure enough, they took Iki Aquanu, offensive tackle from North Carolina State. This draft definitely had defensive line and offensive line, especially dominant. Dominant. When you consider a lot of these drafts have quarterbacks, wide receivers. I know running back, it, it, it's not really what it used to be. But mainly a lot of drafts, what quarterback can we get? What wide receiver can we get? And really this time around, it was both defensive and offensive lines. So then eighth overall, that was another – I like honestly, I thought for sure that the Pittsburgh Steelers, that they were hell-bent on drafting Malik Willis. And so back-to-back with the Atlanta Falcons at eight and the Seattle Seahawks at nine, with Matt Ryan being traded to Indianapolis, Russell Wilson being traded to Denver, you almost felt like these were two teams that you could definitely see drafting Malik Willis. But the Falcons, they went with Drake London, wide receiver out of USC at 8. And then Charles Cross, offensive tackle at 9 to the Seattle Seahawks. And you guys know how big of a fan I am of him. So then at 11, the Washington Commanders, another team you felt that needed a quarterback and someone that I could honestly see taking Kenny Pickett instead of Malik Willis. And then the Saints trade up to number 11. And I'm thinking like, well, Saints need a quarterback too. And one of the hot rumors was that, you know, they were going to try and jump the gun on the Steelers and get Kenny Pickett before they could. But the New Orleans Saints taking Chris Olave, another wide receiver out of Ohio State. So then up next was Johnny Glow's Minnesota Vikings at 12. And I know that both the, the defensive backs that he wanted, Sauce Gardner, Derek Stingley, they were both gone. Detroit Lions trading up to number 12 to draft Jamison Williams, wide receiver out of Alabama. I know Boone was a little skeptical on the pick, but I definitely feel like like that pick will pay off in the end. And this was another team, Detroit at 12 overall. The funny thing is, my girlfriend Kelly and I, we were out having dinner that night at Texas Roadhouse. So we're having dinner, and I have the NFL draft on my phone at the same time. And like I said, when it was Atlanta, when it was Seattle, New Orleans, Detroit, I kept saying to myself, please take Malik, please take Malik, please take Malik. And I'll get to Malik Willis here in a second. But sure enough, they took Jamison Williams. Now, if they didn't go the quarterback route, talking about the Pittsburgh Steelers, someone that I really, really wanted was Jordan Davis, defensive tackle from Georgia. But the hot rumor was the Baltimore Ravens at 14 that they were going to try and pull a fast one on the Pittsburgh Steelers as well. But guess what? It was the other Pennsylvania team that was able to pull a fast one on the Baltimore Ravens. The Philadelphia Eagles, with the multiple draft picks they had in the first round, they traded with the Houston Texans. They swapped picks 13 and 15. And they took Jordan Davis, defensive tackle out of Georgia. That boy is an absolute beast. And definitely someone that is going to be a huge fixture on that defensive line. Fletcher Cox, he's been around for 10 years. You have to know the end is coming for him sooner or later. 
Then the Baltimore Ravens at 14, they took Kyle Hamilton, safety out of Notre Dame. You know, Kyle, a lot of mock drafts early on, they felt like he was going to be a top five or a top 10 pick. And, you know, one thing we know for sure, the Baltimore Ravens, they know how to nail these drafts, especially when it comes to defense. Then the Houston Texans with the 15th overall pick, definitely a bit of a reach if you ask me, taking Kenyon Green, offensive guard. I felt like Kenyon was sort of worthy of towards, towards the end of the first round. Then at 16, the Washington Commanders, this, this was another moment. I was sort of nervous because I'm thinking to myself, like, they need a quarterback. You know, is this where they take Kenny Pickett? But the Washington Commanders taking Jahan Dotson, wide receiver, out of Penn State. Um, honestly, I felt like maybe that might have been a little too high. I expected Jahan Dotson to sort of be picked around the 20s, but nevertheless, another great playmaker they'll have alongside of Scary Terry McLaurin. Then the Los Angeles Chargers at 17, uh, taking Zion Johnson, guard out of Boston College. I definitely like that pick. You've got to protect Justin Herbert at all costs, especially with some of these, some of these nasty defensive lines that we now have in the AFC West. That division is going to be stacked this year. So up next was the Philadelphia Eagles at 18. And all of a sudden, it flashes on my phone, trade. And it was Sean Rosansky's Tennessee Titans. And so I wasn't really shocked, but then I was shocked. While this trade went into effect, the Tennessee Titans sent their number one receiver, A.J. Brown, to the Philadelphia Eagles. And I'm not trying to be gullible, but I was shocked that they traded A.J. Brown to the Philadelphia Eagles. Because A.J. and the Titans, you know, their contract talks had sort of stalled out. And A.J. wanted to be paid at least $20 million a year. And here he claimed the Titans that they were only going to offer him $16 million a year. So sure enough, they sent him to Philadelphia. And Sean Rosansky's point of view on it, it was in some ways kind of surprising because I thought he was going to be upset because I know how much he loved A.J. Brown. And Sean texted me and he said, honestly, I'm fine with it. Like I said to Joey, Joey Hart, a friend of ours we graduated with, credit to Joey, the biggest Jacksonville Jaguars fan in the world, God bless him. But Sean said, like I said to Joey, we can't keep giving out huge guaranteed contracts year in and year out like the Jaguars do. Taylor Lewan, Ryan Tannehill, and maybe Derrick Henry will be gone within the next two years. Teams have such a short window to win a championship that we can't get attached to these players. The organization needs to prepare for the future, and I understand that. And that's a valid point that Sean has because those are some big, big names and personalities that are on that Tennessee Titans offense, like A.J. Brown was. But Taylor Lewan. You know, his personality speaks for itself. Ryan Tannehill, I mean, Ryan, he's, he's a good guy. But Derrick Henry, I mean, without a doubt, the most dominant running back in the National Football League. But those type A personalities and the amount of money that they want and the amount of money that they're getting paid, like Sean said, you're not going to be able to keep them for such a long time. Now, I got to humbly brag a little bit here. When we did our mock draft... You know, a few things sort of came to mind for me when I did the mock draft with Josh, Johnny Glow, and Timmy. 
I had the Jets pick at 10, and I said that they were going to take Garrett Wilson, wide receiver, out of Ohio State, and they did. And then one of the picks that Josh gave me was the Tennessee Titans, originally at 26 overall. And when I had that pick, I had them taking Traylon Burks, wide receiver from Arkansas. Well, with the 18th pick, the Tennessee Titans selected Traylon Burks, wide receiver, Arkansas. So then the moment came, the New Orleans Saints at 19, and I was sweating bullets because I had read a report on Twitter that the New Orleans Saints were thinking about taking Kenny Pickett at 19, just one pick before the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I'm hoping to God that it's not going to be a Malik Willis because that morning I read about Malik Willis's time at Auburn University where he didn't really want to study, didn't want to spend time in the film room, and then had the audacity to wonder why Gene Malzahn wouldn't name him the starter. So sure enough, he transferred to Liberty University and didn't even throw for 3,000 yards on a season, barely had a 60% completion percentage. And Malik Willis has the audacity to wonder why they wouldn't name him the starter at Auburn. If that wasn't a red flag right then and there, I don't know what is. But sure enough, the New Orleans Saints, they took Trevor Penning, offensive tackle from Northern Iowa. So then the moment finally came. The Pittsburgh Steelers were on the clock with the 20th pick in the 2022 NFL Draft. And with Ben Roethlisberger's retirement on January 27th, and then the tragic passing of Dwayne Haskins on April 9th. You knew that they had no choice but to take a quarterback at 20. And I, and I know a lot of people are saying that, oh, you know, this quarterback class was very, very weak. But they had to. And so, sure enough, the Steelers were on the clock. My heart is absolutely pounding out of my chest because I'm fully expecting it to be Malik Willis. And... Kelly and I were just waiting for the pick, and I told Kelly, I'm like, I can't even watch. I seriously cannot even watch. Like, I was literally sick thinking that it was going to be Malik Willis when, when I've won a Kenny Pickett for months. So Roger Goodell comes out to the podium with the Steelers legend himself, Franco Harris, as this year the NFL draft was held in Las Vegas, Las Vegas Raiders, Sure enough, the 50th anniversary of the Immaculate Reception later this year on December 23rd. Franco didn't really get booed as much as I thought he was going to. But it was so cool to have Franco make that announcement who the Steelers were taking at 20. And so, Kelly's watching it. I seriously have my head turned around because I... Do not want to see Malik Willis's name flash across the screen. And when Franco Harris said, with the 20th pick in the 2022 NFL draft, the Pittsburgh Steelers select. And it was almost sort of like time just sort of froze and just sort of stood still at that moment. And then as soon as Franco very enthusiastically said, Kenny Pickett, quarterback, Pittsburgh. I freaking jumped up and down. I am screaming. 
said a couple expletives that obviously I can't repeat on this podcast. I was just so thrilled. This is two years in a row. The Pittsburgh Steelers got exactly who I wanted with their first pick. Najee Harris, last year running back out of Alabama. Kenny Pickett, quarterback, University of Pittsburgh, and Heisman Trophy finalist this past year. And, I mean, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers, they made that mistake in 1983. Dan Marino, Pittsburgh Panthers quarterback. They passed up on him. They believed some sort of fake story about Dan as far as cocaine and drug testing and everything. They believed all that. Sure enough, they let him go to the Miami Dolphins, and then they struggled for 21 years to find a franchise quarterback in Ben Roethlisberger. But they didn't make that same mistake this time around. Kenny Pickett who the Panthers facility is right next to the Steelers facility. He basically grew up in that same facility. He knows the building. He knows the people there. I mean, this was just such a relief and such a shot in the arm for Steeler Nation. Because when Ben retired, obviously, as you guys know, listening to this podcast, I had a lot of doubts going into this year. And honestly, them taking Kenny Pickett, 20th overall, it really brought life back into me as a Steelers fan. Now, moving forward, Mike Tomlin, Kevin Colbert, his final draft as Steelers general manager after 22 years. He retired last night. Thank you, Kevin. A lot of great selections over the years. Yeah, a couple of hits and misses here and there, but a lot of great selections and two Super Bowl championships. But man, what a way to go out in style. Kenny Pickett in the first round. George Pickens in the second round. It's funny. I swear to God, Friday morning Kelly said to me, she's like, who do you want the Steelers to take tonight? I said, swear to God, I said, George Pickens, wide receiver out of Georgia. Bam. DeMarvin Leal, defensive tackle, Texas A&M in the third round. Calvin Austin, wide receiver out of Memphis in the fourth round, another one that I was targeting. Um, I wish they would have addressed the offensive line a little more. And then with their seventh, they had two seventh round picks. And sure enough, the, the final pick they had in the seventh round, the 241st overall, Kevin Colbert's final pick as Steelers general manager. It was a bit of a head scratcher at first, but listen to the logic behind it. He took Chris Alotacoon quarterback from South Dakota State. And so I'm thinking like, hmm, I'm like two quarterbacks in the same draft. Like that doesn't happen very often. The only other one I could remember was the 2012 Washington Redskins where they drafted RG3 second overall behind Andrew Luck and the Colts. And then the fourth round, they drafted Kirk Cousins. But I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. Think about this for a second if you're a Steelers fan. So you signed Mitch Trubisky to a two-year deal. You drafted Kenny Pickett, obviously who you expect to be the future of your franchise. And you take Chris Alatakun with the seventh-round pick. You still have Mason Rudolph, but obviously one of those quarterbacks has to go. And without a doubt, taking not one but two quarterbacks, signing Mitch Trubisky to a two-year deal, that just shows to me sooner or later Mason Rudolph is going to be on his way out of Pittsburgh, which honestly has been long overdue for a couple of years now. 
I think tying against the Detroit Lions, I don't, I don't care what the weather was like that day, but tying against the Detroit Lions, thankfully, it seems like that was the final straw right then and there. So, excellent draft by the Pittsburgh Steelers. Like I said, I would have liked to have seen a little more stuff with the offensive line, but hey, I definitely feel more confident going into the season. So, getting back to the first round, the New England Patriots... They traded away, Bill Belichick traded away the 21st overall pick to his good friend Andy Reid and the Kansas City Chiefs. They drafted Trent McDuffie, corner out of Washington. Then the Green Bay Packers at 22, the pick they acquired when they sent Devontae Adams to the Raiders. You, you thought for sure this had to be a wide receiver. And they took Quay Walker, a linebacker out of Georgia, who honestly I felt was probably more worthy of a second-round pick. The Green Bay Packers have not drafted a wide receiver in the first round since Javon Walker in 2002. Then the Cardinals at 23. This was crazy. So the Baltimore Ravens originally had that pick. They took it from the Cardinals. Then they sent Marquise Brown, Hollywood Brown, Lamar Jackson's number one target to the Arizona Cardinals. The Buffalo Bills at 25. They trade with the Ravens to take Kair Elam, defensive back from my Florida Gators. Which, honestly, decent pick. But I felt like maybe get a few more playmakers for Josh Allen, which they did. I mean, they, they drafted James Cook, Dalvin Cook's younger brother, the following night, running back from Georgia. The Dallas Cowboys at 24, they went offensive line, but they went Tyler Smith out of Tulsa. I don't know how Josh Manley feels, but I was a little skeptical on that one. The Baltimore Ravens, boy, do they know how to nail their drafts or what. One of the steals in the first round, without a doubt, Tyler Linderbaum, center from Iowa. Excellent pick. And then the Tennessee Titans at 26. Sure enough, the Jets trade back in to take Jermaine Johnson, edge rusher out of Florida State. And then with the 27th pick, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they trade their way out of the first round. With the Jacksonville Jaguars, the Jags give them the first pick of the second round the following night, the 33rd overall pick, the Jags took Devin Lloyd, linebacker out of Utah. But it's like Jason Boone said, especially with Doug Peterson being an Eagles fan, Doug Peterson now being the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Like Boone always says, you build within the trenches, you protect your investment, and Trevor Lawrence needs all the protection in the world right now. So I know Boone was definitely leaning offensive line with that pick. Then the Green Bay Packers, they were back on at 28 with their original pick, and they took Devontae Wyatt, defensive tackle out of Georgia. There's some character concerns there. But then, once again, still no wide receiver for Aaron Rodgers. The New England Patriots at 29, taking Cole Strange, offensive guard from Chattanooga, when Cole was expected to be really a third-round player or projection. As much as I respect Bill Belichick, I definitely did not understand that. Then the Kansas City Chiefs at 30. You were still thinking wide receiver. They've got to go wide receiver. But they took George Karloftis, edge rusher out of Purdue. Another steal. Then with the Cincinnati Bengals at 31, taking Daxton Hill, safety out of Michigan. I was sort of expecting them to go offensive line, but nevertheless, I know Josh was talking about how much he loved Dax Hill when he was at Michigan. And without a doubt, his sister Laura definitely going to love that pick right there for the Bengals. 
Then, Johnny Glow's Minnesota Vikings to round out round number one of the night at 32 with Lewis Sign, safety out of Georgia. Then on to Friday night, Tampa really, really beefing up that dominant defensive line they have even more with Logan Hall out of Houston. The Green Bay Packers at 34 finally taking a wide receiver, and it's a good one. Christian Watson out of North Dakota. Brees Hall to the Jets at running back from Iowa State. Like I said, the Jets, they really, really nailed their draft. And then some other notables in the second round. Like I said, I wanted the Steelers to get George Pickens out of Georgia, and they took him. And the Kansas City Chiefs to get Sky Moore from Western Michigan in the second round. I loved that pick. So, amidst all this, you're thinking, hmm, Malik Willis, what happened? You know, you heard, oh, second overall to the Lions, sixth overall to the Panthers, 20th overall to the Steelers. He's definitely the future of the Steelers. Can't believe some of those people. He didn't get drafted in the first round, didn't get drafted in the second round. <laughs> By the third round, Kyle texts me. He's like, I hope he goes undrafted. <laughs> The Atlanta Falcons, they needed a quarterback. And at 74th overall, they took Desmond Ritter out of Cincinnati. And honestly, my order as far as those three quarterbacks in this draft, Kenny Pickett, Desmond Ritter, then Malik Willis. I was very, very skeptical of Sam Howell for UNC. I think it was a bit of a mistake by Washington taking him in the fifth round, but that speaks volumes him falling all the way to the fifth round. And then and then Carson Strong out of Nevada, he didn't get drafted at all. Matter of fact, the Eagles signed him undrafted last night. So the Tennessee Titans at 86th took Malik Willis, quarterback out of Liberty University. And Sean Rosansky, if you're listening, I love you, but I'm telling you, this is an absolute mistake. And I get the point that you were saying that, you know, a lot of these guys are not going to be around for a long time. These guys that have these big contracts with the Titans, like Ryan Tannehill, for instance. But Jason Boone messaged me last night and said that Ryan Tannehill was never informed by their general manager, by Mike Vrabel, by the front office whatsoever that they were going to take Malik Willis if he was available in the third round. That's shitty. There's no other way around it. This is an absolute mistake by the Tennessee Titans. Like I said, someone that didn't put in the time at Auburn, didn't want to be in the film room, wondered why he wouldn't be the starter, transfers to Liberty where he has no competition whatsoever. And the one thing with Malik Willis is they're saying, oh, it might take him a full two years before he starts. Why would you want to waste a third-round pick on that? when there was so many other needs that the Tennessee Titans have. This was a huge, and you guys know how much I love Mike Vrabel. Now that Bruce Arians has quote-unquote retired, I mean, Mike is by far my favorite coach in the NFL, but this, this was a dumb pick. When in reality, I look at Malik Willis, and you want to make a comparison as far as how I think his career is going to pan out, I see him as the next Jamarcus Russell. So, huge mistake by the Tennessee Titans. Huge mistake. Then the Carolina Panthers 
with the 94th pick taking Matt Corral, quarterback out of Ole Miss. Definitely another one that I, I really wasn't sold on, and I'm glad the Steelers passed on him. So all in all, a fun, fun NFL draft. I mean, the, the draft never fails to disappoint. Sure enough, the first night, we had 30 million people watch the draft on TV, including myself and including my girlfriend Kelly. You had 150,000 people in Las Vegas for the first night of the NFL draft. Obviously, I would imagine the numbers sort of dwindled down the next two days with rounds two and three on Friday night and then four through seven yesterday. But definitely an exciting NFL draft. So last weekend at Talladega Super Speedway, obviously the cup race at Talladega, it's a story in itself. Dale Earnhardt Jr. in the booth for NASCAR and Fox. That was a story in itself. But agree or disagree, Dale Jr. was not the Earnhardt that made the most noise this past weekend at Talladega Super Speedway. His nephew, Jeffrey Earnhardt, in a black number three NASCAR Xfinity Series car for Richard Childress Racing, definitely stole the show Friday and Saturday at Talladega Super Speedway. As we know, the number three that was made so famous by his grandfather, the late great Dale Earnhardt Sr., the number three, which guided him to 67 of his 76 career victories in the NASCAR Winston Cup Series and six of his seven NASCAR Winston Cup championships. Well, his uncle, Dale Earnhardt Jr., You know, Dale Jr. had some success in the number three himself in the NASCAR Busch Series. Sure enough, his two championships in the Busch Series, 1998-1999, they won 13 races, seven in 1998, six in 1999, and then Dale Jr. would take the three to victory lane two more times after moving up full-time to the Cup Series. But sure enough, taking the number three to victory lane in the NASCAR Busch Series twice at Daytona, February of 2002. Then sure enough, the last time Dale Earnhardt Jr. would ever drive the number three at Daytona in July of 2010. That beautiful Wrangler car in honor of his father going into the inaugural NASCAR Hall of Fame class. Now, Dale Earnhardt Jr., when he was in the NASCAR Busch Series full-time in 1998-1999, He was able to win six poles, and the last was June of 1999 at Myrtle Beach Speedway, which sadly was torn down. But Friday evening at Talladega Super Speedway, for the first time in 23 years since his uncle won the pole at Myrtle Beach Speedway, Jeffrey Earnhardt was on the pole for Saturday's NASCAR Xfinity Series race at Talladega Super Speedway. He led the first few laps, did a great job of staying out of trouble, dodging the wrecks, and that run that he went on those last two laps, charging from 8th to 2nd, the final two laps at Talladega Super Speedway with Larry McReynolds on the box, just like he was for his grandfather in 1997 and 1998. You know, it's almost like there was another Earnhardt that took, took the wheel of that three car, those last two laps at Talladega. And this was probably the only time that I was ever, as strange as this may sound, the only time I was bummed out to see one of Dale Jr.'s cars go to victory lane, as strange as that may sound. 
And obviously, I love Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Jr. Motorsports. And Noah Gregson is a hell of a talent. And it was great to see him win that race. But I really, really wanted to see Jeffrey Earnhardt pull off that win last Saturday at Talladega Super Speedway in that black number three car. And if that race would have been one lap longer, I think that Jeffrey definitely would have gotten Noah Gregson. And the thing with Jeffrey is, and I know it's Talladega, but this past weekend at Talladega Super Speedway, I think that he was able to shut up a lot of the critics that he's had throughout his career. You know, a lot of people have said, like, oh, he's riding his family's coattails, his grandfather, his dad, Carrie, his uncle, Dale Jr. You know, he's only there because of his last name. Jeffrey has really had to fight and scratch and claw to get to this point in the sport. And I know a lot of people get on Dale Jr.'s ass and they say, like, you know, how come you don't put Jeffrey in a junior motorsports car full-time? And Dale Jr. said, like, he and his sister Kelly, like, that would be, you know, obviously that would be a dream come true for the whole, the whole Earnhardt family to have Jeffrey race full-time for them. And sure enough, they presented Jeffrey with some offers to go race for junior motorsports. He did a race for them at Richmond in the spring of 2013 and ran in the top five a lot before his brakes faded towards the end of the race. But Jeffrey said that, I want to make it on my own terms. You know, I, yeah, obviously he loves his uncle and his aunt, but he doesn't want that moniker or that narrative that, oh, you know, oh, he's driving for his uncle and his aunt. That's the only reason that he's in the sport. You know, Jeffrey, want, like I said, he wants to make it on his own terms. He's doing it the hard way. I mean, he's he's 32 years old. He's going to be 33 in June. Obviously, I'm sure the goal of his is one day to be full-time in the NASCAR Cup Series in a competitive car, or even the NASCAR Xfinity Series, for that matter. So Jeffrey definitely was the show at Talladega Super Speedway last Saturday. Just seeing that, that, patented, that patented Earnhardt grin that we've seen so many times, whether it was his great-grandfather Ralph, his grandfather, his dad, and his uncle, just seeing that grin that he had in his face after that race was over. And I hope, I really hope that somehow Richard and Forever Alon, which has been Jeffrey's sponsor for about two years now, I really hope that they could put a deal together for Jeffrey to go back to Daytona in August with that black number three car, and obviously with Larry McReynolds because you know, NASCAR and Fox, they'll be done at that point. It'll be NBC's part of the year. I would definitely love to see Jeffrey, maybe somehow, some way, even if it's just a NASCAR Xfinity series, to run full-time in that three-car for Richard Childress Racing. Obviously, if I had my way, in a perfect world, as his uncle Dale Earnhardt Jr. always says, in a perfect world, I would love to see Jeffrey be full-time in the Cup Series in that number three car. But obviously, we know that'll never, ever happen. You know, Austin Dillon, that's Richard's grandson. Obviously, you know, that's pretty much what he's going to drive throughout his whole career. Even, even after Richard is long gone and passes away, I cannot see Austin driving anything but that three car. But obviously, you guys know how much that number means to the Earnhardt family and to a lot of Earnhardt fans like myself, like Sean Rosansky. So it was definitely 
a bittersweet ending to that Xfinity race at Talladega Super Speedway. You're happy for Noah, you're happy for Dale Jr. and Kelly, but at the same time, you're thinking like, damn, that would have been so cool. So cool to see Jeffrey get the win at Talladega, the track that his grandfather and his uncle were the most successful at. And unfortunately, just sort of ran out of time there at the end. But kudos to Jeffrey Earnhardt and... You know, definitely cannot wait to see him back behind the wheel of an Xfinity car. I'm not sure when his next race is. It might be his home race at Charlotte. But he definitely turned a lot of heads last weekend at Talladega Super Speedway. And hopefully there's more opportunities to come. So, Talladega Super Speedway. As we know, it always lives up to the hype. So... On Sunday, a little after, quarter after three or so, with Joe Gibbs Racing teammates Christopher Bell and Martin Trex Jr. on the front row, we were underway at Talladega Super Speedway. And once again, Trackhouse Racing, Ross Chastain, obviously, the first one of his career at Circuit of the Americas, but Daniel Suarez, Man, he is knocking on the door of that first NASCAR Cup Series victory. And sure enough, I mean, he dominated the early portions of this race, leading 28 laps on the day. Like, it really, really looked like this was going to be the day that he was finally going to get his first NASCAR Cup Series win. But you know who honestly surprised me this past weekend at Talladega Super Speedway? And this sounds so weird when you think of it. But one of the biggest surprises in a good way at Talladega was Kyle Larson. Because Kyle, going into this past Sunday at Talladega Super Speedway, had never had a top five finish in a cup car at Daytona or Talladega. You know, we've talked in previous shows. Obviously, you look at a Brad Keselowski, Bubba Wallace, Joey Logano, Ryan Blaney, the Dillon brothers. You know, for, for those guys, they adapt to the style of plate racing of Daytona and Talladega, they caught on like that. You know, they, it's been, it comes naturally to them just like it did for, for Dale Earnhardt Jr. And senior. But for Kyle Larson, he's never really caught on to it. I mean, think of it. The only Xfinity win he had at Daytona in July of 2018, it was only because they penalized Justin Haley for going below the yellow line. So, to see him up front and leading laps and leading tons of laps on Sunday at Talladega, it's not just like, you know, Kyle got to the lead and led one or two or three laps and then, then got shuffled out and then ends up getting wrecked like has like happened before. I mean, he looks stout on Sunday at Talladega. And, of course, another one that looked stout was Bubba Wallace, the site of his very first win in, in October of 2021. But you knew sooner or later as clean of a start that we had that all hell was going to break loose sooner or later. And it did on lap 58 when Daniel Hemrick, his engine dies going into turn three. And obviously he didn't have enough time to wave his hand out the window and say, Hey, I'm blowing up. Austin Dillon runs into the back of him. Nothing Austin could do. And Daniel shoots right up the track into chase Briscoe and in turn chase Briscoe, ricochets right into Cole Custer. Three really nasty crashes. Thankfully, Chris and Chase were okay. Here, come to find out that Daniel took such a hit that he broke his left foot 
and did a remarkable job yesterday in the Xfinity race, finishing fourth, I believe, or not fourth, sixth it was, excuse me. So that was the end of the first stage. Bubba Wallace, his first stage win of the year, just barely edging out Kyle Larson. You knew Bubba was going to be strong, but I would have to say the biggest disappointment of the race last Sunday at Talladega Super Speedway. I love the guy to death. He's my driver. But when I have to call him out, I have to call him out. Brad Keselowski, speeding on pit road. His first green flag pit stop of the day. And you want to know who else sped on pit road? Ross Chastain. And think of it. Ross, as we'll talk about here in, in just a little bit, Ross came all the way back to win the race. But Brad, as I said, every week is now a must-win situation. And for him to speed on pit road at his best track, knowing that this is the best chance he'll have at winning for probably quite a little while, just the way his season's gone and the way that Talladega is, it was unacceptable for him to speed on pit road not once but twice. I mean, he got in his way in prime position there towards the end, all the way up to about fourth or fifth, and sped on pit road again and finished one lap down in 23rd. That's unacceptable. And I know, hey, mistakes mistakes happen. Mistakes happen. It happens to the best of them. You know, Kyle Larson, he's sped on pit road before. They've all sped on pit road before. But to make that same mistake twice at your best track when you know this is the best shot you'll have at winning for quite a while, there's absolutely no excuse for it. Plain and simple. But the other guy that stole a lot of the headlines on Sunday in a good way was Eric Jones. Eric has really gotten the most out of that 43 car. And you figure, yeah, it's Talladega, but no. Eric, this year especially, has had so many good runs. Look at how strong he was at California Speedway with his new crew chief, Dave Ellens. They easily could have won that race before they ended up finishing third. And Eric, like I said, Eric was definitely one of the strongest cars on Sunday at Talladega Super Speedway, leading tons and tons of laps. So you sort of knew sooner or later that we were going to have a big one. And in Talladega lately, the past two years, I would say, we sort of have many big ones. Now, when it comes to Xfinity, when it comes to trucks, it seems like it's big one after big one, shit show after shit show. And Talladega, I would say since about both 2021 races, albeit, you know, the October race, they were racing against the rain, which eventually came and cut the race short. But the last two spring races at Talladega Super Speedway, we really haven't had a big one. And sure enough, it ended up happening once again. So lap 87, BJ McLeod, one of the wheels came off of his car. And sure enough, his crew chief, his tire changer, and his jackman, they've been suspended for the next four races. But we we went back to green on lap 91 with William Byron leading. And William, it looked like when he was out front, nobody could pass him. But we go back to green. Bubba Wallace right behind Joey Logano. And Bubba wanted to give Joey quite the push. And just the way that their bumpers lined up, Joey hit the wall, came back down into traffic, nailed his teammate Austin Sendrick, Ty Dillon, and a couple other cars. And it was sort of, like I said, sort of a mini big one. As I said, Joey Logano, his teammate Austin Sendrick, Daniel Suarez, Ty Dillon, who had a very, very strong car, was working great 
with Eric Jones on Sunday, his teammate. Harrison Burton, Kyle Busch just barely dodged the accident. Todd Gilliland, who obviously had a chance to spoil the party on Sunday before that happened. Cole Custer, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., who was having a horrible, and I mean horrible, season. And Brad Keselowski, because of his speeding penalty, finally back on the lead lap. And credit TJ Majors, just like he did for Dale Earnhardt Jr. in the Xfinity race in Martinsville. The way that TJ was so animated on that radio, telling him what to do and how to dodge the wrecks and everything, was remarkable. And all bias aside, that's what, make T- that's what makes TJ Majors the best spotter in the sport. So sure enough, William Byron, Willie B, goes on to win the second stage of the race. And as I talked about on the last show, Chevrolet had to do a better job of working together at Talladega. And sure enough, the Hendrick cars, at one point, they were running one, two, three, four with Byron, Chase, Larson, and Bowman. But you sort of knew, obviously, there was no way that that was going to be, that they were going to be able to keep that up for quite a long time. And when you look at Ryan Blaney, the only Penske car that didn't have any damage, you know, you, you knew that Ryan was going to be strong, and he did lead tons of laps towards the end of the race on Sunday, but obviously, you know, the pit stops just sort of, you know, didn't work in his favor. But you knew that that 23XI duo, sort of Joe Gibbs equipment with Bubba and with Kurt Busch, you knew that they were going to be strong as well. They've adapted so well to the draft. And sure enough, they made a presence there towards the end of the race. And sure enough, their car owner, Denny Hamlin, you know, Denny, it was looking like maybe this was the day that he was finally going to get his season turned around. And sure enough, he runs out of gas. I mean, that's just the way that his year has gone. But the laps were winding down. Kyle Larson, you're thinking, holy crap, Kyle Larson possibly going to win at Talladega? But you just sort of knew that he... Eventually, you get down to those last few laps of Talladega, you know that it's not going to last. And sure enough, Eric Jones, lap 185, four laps to go. He made the pass. He took the lead. But you sort of knew as that last lap began that he was a sitting duck. And Larson did a really, really good job of dragging the brake, letting Eric Jones get too far out in front. And when Eric went up to block Kyle Larson, Kyle Larson... Drifts up into Kurt Busch, Kurt nailed the wall, taking his teammate Bubba Wallace with him. Bubba took took a nasty shot as well. I mean, he was he was hovering over as soon as he got out of his car. But it's like Dale Earnhardt Jr. said, and he he was excellent on Sunday with with Mike Joy and Clint Boyer. But Dale Earnhardt Jr. said, obviously a six time Talladega winner himself, you do not leave that bottom open whatsoever, and that was the mistake that Eric Jones made. And here comes the watermelon man himself, Ross Chastain. The only lap he led on Sunday, but hey, it was the one that mattered most. His second win of 2021 and the second of his career, obviously his first at Talladega Super Speedway. Ross Chastain, your winner, smashing that watermelon on the roof of the car once again. (laughs) Two days in a row, the three-car finished the second. Jeffrey Earnhardt on Saturday, Austin Dillon on Sunday. Kyle Busch dodging all of those wrecks to finish third. Kyle Larson, his first ever top five finish at Talladega Super Speedway in fourth. Martin Truex Jr., only his third top five finish at Talladega, and they're all fifth place finishes, the first of his career in October 2006. 
but Martin's first top five and top ten at Talladega since May of 2015. Eric Jones went from leading all the way back to sixth, Chase Elliott seventh, Michael McDowell eighth, Alex Bowman backing into a top ten once again after all those cars crashed on the last lap in ninth, Kevin Harvick in tenth, Ryan Blaney was 11th, Justin Moneymaker Haley in 12th, Eric Amarola 13th, Corey LaJoy, Corey, it looked like he was going to sneak his way into a top five finish and then got spun coming to the line in 14th, William Byron had a hell of a run on the last lap, got pinned into the wall in 15th. Then the 23XI cars of Kurt Busch and Bubba Wallace, 16th and 17th. Their car owner, Denny Hamlin, in 18th. Landon Castle, 19th, and Noah Gregson rounding out the top 20. Austin Sindrick was 21st. Christopher Bell, first car lap down after getting spun coming off a pit road by his teammate Kyle Busch. Brad Keselowski, as I said, self-inflicted penalties not once but twice. One lap down in 23rd. David Reagan, 24th, J.J. Yaley, 25th, B.J. McLeod, 26th, as I said, going to be without his crew chief for the next four races. And then these cars did not finish, all because of crash damage. Todd Gillen in 27th, Cody Ware in 28th, Cole Custer, 29th, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., 30th, Daniel Suarez, 31st, Joey Logano in 32nd, Ty Dillon, 33rd, Harrison Burton, 34th, Greg Biffle, 35th, he actually had some engine and fuel pressure issues, but as I said, the rest. Daniel Hamrick in 36th, Chase Briscoe, 37th, Chris Buescher, 38th, and then Tyler Reddick, who went out of the race on lap 31 with an engine failure. So as I said, Talladega, once again, lived up to all the hype. Dale Earnhardt Jr. was excellent in the booth, had a great rapport with Clint Boyer. I mean, they've been great friends for such a long time. And Mike Joy was able to, like I said, really, really work so good with Dale Jr. The first time they had worked together in five years. And in exchange, you know, NBC loaning Dale Jr. to Fox for this race. Sure enough, when NBC gets on the air June 26th at the Nashville Super Speedway, they haven't announced what race it'll be yet. It could be Nashville since obviously Clint loves the Nashville area, but Clint Boyer will be joining NASCAR on NBC for a race later this year. Now, before we get into today's race at Dover Motor Speedway, two other major topics that we have to cover. So, Kyle Busch, two-time NASCAR Cup Series champion, 2015 and 2019, 60 NASCAR Cup Series victories. Obviously, the huge announcement before the season started that the Mars Company so you're talking M&M's, Snickers, so on and so forth. They made the announcement that after Snickers was another one of them, Snickers, Skittles, M&M's, they made the announcement after 30-plus years in NASCAR that they will be leaving the sport at the conclusion of the 2022 NASCAR Cup Series season. And that created a huge hole as far as the sponsorship inventory on the 18 team. Obviously, Interstate Batteries, they've been a part of that 18 car and Joe Gibbs Racing since it began in 1992. But Interstate Batteries, when Kyle Busch joined there in 2008, they've gradually sort of scaled back as far as the number of races that are on there on the 18 car. So Kyle's contract is up at the end of 2022. And you figure that 
obviously somebody as talented as he is. I mean, let's face it, Kyle Larson, he's very, very talented, but Kyle Busch has the most talent overall as far as the NASCAR Cup Series is concerned. And when Kyle met with the media on Saturday at Talladega Super Speedway, and they discussed his contract talks, some of the comments that he made, he was very, very short with the media. And they asked Kyle, they said, when would you like to get a deal done? Yesterday. And then they asked him if he's getting antsy about it. He said, I'm not getting antsy about it. If it happens, it happens. If it don't, it don't. Goodbye. And they asked him, they said, is goodbye an option? He said, ask Joe Gibbs. And they asked him, they're like, are you retiring? Ask Joe Gibbs. Now, I'm not trying to be gullible here, but I cannot see Kyle Busch finishing out his career in any other car but the 18 car. Now, he's going to be 37 years old tomorrow. He has been full-time in the NASCAR Cup Series since 2005. 2008 was when he made the transition from Hendrick Motorsports to Joe Gibbs Racing. I still stand by it that that was the biggest mistake that Rick Hendrick ever made was kicking Kyle Busch to the curb and keeping Casey Mears, who he would end up firing a year later. I mean, for a split second, think, think of think of that Think of that lineup that Hendrick Motorsports could have had. Dale Earnhardt Jr., Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson, and Kyle Busch. I mean, yeah, in some ways, you know, it was a blessing in disguise because Kyle, if he would have been teammates with Dale Earnhardt Jr., you know that obviously he would be the bottom of the totem pole as far as Rick's priorities. So, I mean, it really worked out in his favor. And, I mean, he has been the alpha, the top dog at Joe Gibbs Racing ever since he got there. But those kind of comments, Brett Griffin, who's on door bumper clear, he's the spotter for Justin Haley. He said, really, when you think of it, those comments were so disrespectful to Joe Gibbs, to the Mars brand, to Interstate Batteries, to Toyota, to everyone that's been a part of that 18 car ever since Kyle got there in 2008. And Brett brought up the point that, you know, Rick Hendrick, Rick Hendrick, kicked him to the curb for a reason. Obviously, it wasn't for a lack of performance. It was his attitude. And, you know, Kyle was 21 going on 22. And, I mean, hey, we all say and do stupid shit when we're 21 or 22 years old. And you look back on it all these years later. I mean, I'm 32. I look back on things I might have said or or did when I was 21 or 22. And I'm thinking, God, that was stupid. Why the hell did I say that? Why did I do that? But it's part of growing up. It's part of learning. And so... Kyle had his three strikes, whether it was saying the car tomorrow, the new Chevy Impala sucked after he won with it at Bristol, then snapping out at Texas Motor Speedway and leaving the track while they were still fixing the car, and Dale Earnhardt Jr. getting in the five car and finishing finishing the race for Alan Gustafson and that pit crew, and then taking himself and his brother Kurt out in the all-star race, and he and Kurt then talked for almost a year after that happened. And Rick thought, like... This is too much of a headache. I've got to let him go. And Brett said the only team that was willing to pay him and willing to put up with his shenanigans, the shenanigans of a 22-year-old at that time, was Joe Gibbs Racing. They paid him a boatload of money. Joe Gibbs, M&Ms. They made the switch from Chevrolet to Toyota. Obviously, he's been the face of Toyota ever since then. 
So it was really a slap in the face to all of those involved. Now, there's a lot of layers to as far as Kyle Busch and Joe Gibbs racing go. Obviously, number one is the sponsor. Now, when Kyle won the Bristol Dirt Race, Coy Gibbs, Joe's son, and Ty Gibbs' father, you know, he was there on behalf of Joe. I guess Joe wasn't there that night, obviously, with it being Easter Sunday. And uh, Coy handled all the media obligations, and he said that he's like, we're still working on sponsors for the 18 car. And that's really the only thing that's preventing us from getting a deal done with Kyle. So I'm sure that they have something lined up. I mean, hey, it's Kyle freaking Bush. Obviously, I can't repeat it the way, you know, Kyle, I mean, KFB. But obviously, I'm sure there are sponsors that are going to be knocking on Joe Gibbs's door to be on that 18 car in 2023. But also at the same time, like I said, Coy Gibbs, the father of Ty Gibbs. And we know that Ty is going to be in the Cup Series in 2023. Nothing has been announced yet, but I mean, there is no reason to keep him full-time in Xfinity for another year in 2023. You have three veteran drivers, one young driver in Christopher Bell, who's going to be 28 later this year. But think of it, Martin Trex Jr. and Denny Hamlin, they're both going to be 42 years old later this year. Kyle's going to be 37 tomorrow. But Christopher, Martin, and Kyle, their contracts are up at the end of 2022. Now, me personally, I feel like if anyone is going to get the boot and be odd man out at Joe Gibbs Racing, I think it's going to be Martin Trex Jr. I mean, he is the senior driver at Joe Gibbs, albeit he's just a few months older than, than Denny Hamlin. But I, honestly, I don't think Martin is really enjoying the next-gen car. I mean, he's definitely been struggling with it so far this year. And something just tells me that I can definitely see this being Martin Trex Jr.'s last year in the NASCAR Cup Series. Now, he met with the media, I think it was yesterday, and he said that he still has a few weeks before you know, a decision as far as 2023 is concerned. But something just tells me that Martin is not going to be in that 19 car in 2023. I think it's going to be Ty Gibbs. But think of it, though, the 18, that's been the flagship car at Joe Gibbs Racing ever since they started in 1992. Dale Jarrett, Bobby Labonte, the 2000 NASCAR Winston Cup Championship. J.J. Yaley, the brief stint that he had in the 18 car before Kyle came in 2008. That is the flagship car. Just like the 6 is with Roush. Just like the 3 is with Richard Childress Racing. Like, that is the premier car. Hendrick Motorsports, it's sort of a toss-up. I mean, obviously, the five car, that was the first ever car with Hendrick Motorsports, but you can make the argument that the 24 is the flagship car at Hendrick. But my point is, I would imagine that Joe Gibbs would want his grandson, Ty Gibbs, in that 18 car. Now, if a scenario like that were to happen... Brett said that really the only organization that he could see paying Kyle the amount of money that he wants is Stuart Haas Racing. Now think about that for a second. Because Eric Almirola will be retiring after the 2022 season is over, so that 10 car will be open. I still say that Ryan Priest is going to be in that 10 car come 2023. But 2023, guess whose contract is up? Kevin Harvick. And Kevin is going to be 47 years old in December. And something just tells me, you know, Kevin is another one like Martin Trex Jr. 
I think they're both at the point of effort mode that they're ready to hang up their helmets, especially after the, the rant that Kevin had after crashing out of Bristol on Easter. How ironic would that be if, you know, cause Kevin, I mean, Hey, even though the contract is up next year, you know, he come 2022 after the season's over, he could say, you know, Hey, it's time. It's time for me to hang it up. It's time for me to spend more time with Delana, Keelan and Piper. How ironic would that be if Kyle Busch was in the four car after all the bad blood that he and Kevin had back in the early 2010s? That would be hilarious if you ask me. But the point that Brett made is, think of it, obviously Gene Haas has the money. I mean, God, he has two Formula One teams when you think of it, and sure enough, he has the Haas sponsorship on both of them. But think of it, Tony. Tony, you know, he was the bad boy himself. He's not afraid to take chances on bad boys like his older brother, Kurt Busch. When nobody else wanted to sponsor Kurt Busch and no one wanted to put him in a competitive car, it was Tony Stewart and Gene Haas. Could they do the same thing with Kyle? Maybe with that 10 car in 2023. You never know. Obviously, there's the other option, 23XI. You know, would Denny possibly expand to a third team and have Kurt be as, as a true teammate to his older brother? And be a teammate to Bubba Wallace, who Bubba drove for Kyle in the truck series in 2013 and 2014. But that's the thing. Like Brett said, he's been the face of Toyota. Toyota has poured so much money into Kyle Busch Motorsports. They're the greatest team in NASCAR truck series history. They've developed so, so much talent. Like William Byron, Bubba Wallace, Christopher Bell. The list goes on and on and on. So... Even though there's all those scenarios, I obviously he would never go back to Hendrick. He burned his bridges all the way back in 2007. And Penske, he sure as hell would not fit the Penske culture whatsoever. I mean, obviously, look at what happened to his brother. You know, Penske eventually had to fire Kurt because of the way that he was back then. So I'm confident that Kyle and Joe Gibbs Racing, I'm confident they'll get a deal done and he'll be in that 18 car come 2023 and I definitely see Kyle finishing out his career in that 18 car. Now, how much longer is he going to race for? That remains to be seen. As I said, he'll be 37 tomorrow, but he's been doing this full-time since 2005. I see Kyle maybe racing until full-time in the Cup Series until I say about 2025. That's maybe when I see him hanging it up. And once Kyle hangs up his helmet as far as the Cup Series goes, you know that he's going to get in that 51 truck at Kyle Busch Motorsports and run full-time and become the first to pull off that trifecta of being a Cup Series champion, an Xfinity Series champion, and a Truck Series champion. A few have come close to it. Greg Biffle's come the closest. I mean, the Truck Championship in 2000, the Bush Series Championship in 2002, and then finishing second to Tony Stewart in the 2005 Cup Championship. That's the closest anybody has ever come to it. So... I feel like they will get a deal done. But if for some reason they can't, if for some reason Joe wants to push him out the door for his grandson, then I would definitely look at Stuart Haas racing in that 10 car. Now on Monday night, Denny Hamlin. This is going to be a very, very tricky subject here. But Denny was pissed 
you know, that both of his cars with Bubba Wallace and Kurt Busch, both of them had a shot to win that race on Sunday at Talladega. And both of them ended up getting crashed after Kyle Larson shoved Kurt Busch in on the wall. Like I said, Kurt and Bubba, they both took nasty shots, and thankfully both of them are okay. But Kyle, he's a, he's a Japanese-American driver, born in Elk Grove, California. And there's this, there was this episode of Family Guy where they were doing a stereotype of Asian female drivers, but Asian drivers in particular. And it's the clip where this lady was saying, how much signal do I need to cut across the lane? None. Good luck, everybody else. And sure enough, she swerves over into the lane and a bunch of cars crash and one of them catches on fire. So Denny was taking a shot at Kyle Larson when you think of it. And in some ways, you know, you you make the connection. Oh, Kyle Larson. Oh, he's Japanese-American. He's, he's of Asian descent. And sure enough, it didn't take long that NASCAR announced that he was going to have to undergo sensitivity training for it. And what makes this such a tricky subject is, you know, Denny said, number one, he and Kyle are great friends. Was, was he mad with what happened on Sunday? Absolutely. But he said that he was just, just poking fun at Kyle. And I get that and everything, but that's just the politically correct world that we live in nowadays that he has to undergo sensitivity training for it. Just like Kyle two years ago when he blurted out the N-word during an iRace on Easter Sunday when they were doing an iRace at Monza, and he said, hey, you know what? And was basically suspended for the rest of the season and had to do sensitivity training. Kyle Busch. You know, Kyle Busch, the latest chapter in the bad blood that he and Brad Keselowski have. You know, last year at Martinsville, when they were battling for a second behind Alex Bowman coming on a checkered flag. And Brad ran into Kyle a bunch of times. Kyle didn't appreciate it. You know, he finished second, Brad finished third, and Brad dumped him after the race was over. And sure enough, Kyle called Brad the R word. And he had to undergo sensitivity training. So that's the thing. It's nowadays, like, you... It was meant as a joke in Denny's case... But there are so many sponsors, obviously with corporate America, that now you you have to watch everything you say. You have to watch everything you tweet. Because obviously, look at what happened. And it's like Kyle said, like, yeah, you know, they, they had to, you know, obviously they had to do something. But at the end of the day, I don't think it, that it really offended Kyle or upset Kyle all that much. So definitely a tricky subject. But like I said, moving forward, you know, Denny and Kyle, they've always been good friends. They golf a lot together. I still remember when I was at Darlington in 2019, they were hanging out and they were hanging out and I think it was Denny's motorhome playing some sort of golf game on on TV, so it'll all work out in the end. So today is Dover Motor Speedway. Their only race on the 2022 NASCAR Cup Series season. Now, my biggest concern moving forward with Dover is this is a track that has been on the NASCAR Cup Series schedule since 1969. They had two races for a very, very long time. They were independently owned, Dover Motorsports Incorporated. And you remember back to 
September 23rd, 2001, that emotional pre-race at Dover, the first NASCAR race held after the terrorist attacks on September 11th, and just seeing all of those grandstands packed, and all of them with their American flags chanting, USA, USA, and then three and a half hours later, Dale Earnhardt Jr., once again carrying the sport on his shoulders, just like he did at Daytona two months prior, the first time back to Daytona after his father's death there, winning the race, and then winning at Dover, and taking that American flag with him for a victory lap around the track, and like the late great Benny Parsons said, it doesn't get much better than this, and Earnhardt carrying an American flag around the racetrack after winning. I went to my first race at Dover the following year, that fall race, with my father. What an amazing weekend we had, going to the Bush race on Saturday, then the Cup race on Sunday. Dale Earnhardt Jr. looking like he was going to win the fall race at Dover two years in a row. Dominated. I mean dominated the first half of that race. And not one but two flat tires. And he finished four laps down in 24th. And Jimmy Johnson, sure enough, his rookie season, Jimmy sweeping both races at Dover and going on to win there 11 times. And the thing is, Jimmy won at Dover so much, but also towards the end of the 2000s, with the economy the way that it was year by year you saw the stands at Dover starting to get more and more empty and like I said I don't think you know people could say oh you know Jimmy killed the sport oh he drew so many fans away but at the same time like I said when the economy crashed in 2008 you know that also prompted a lot of fans not going to races and so in the early 2010s, like, it was sad seeing Dover. You'd be watching a race. I've gone to Dover four times, but you'd be watching a race, and you would just see so many empty seats. And then I think it was like 2011 or 2012, they took out a bunch of seats down in turns three and four. And then after the doubleheader they had there in 2020, with no fans, obviously, because of COVID-19, Sure enough, the 2021 schedule gets announced, and Dover loses a race. They lose a race to Nashville Super Speedway. And here, excuse me, Bruton and Marcus Smith, Speedway Motorsports Incorporated, SMI, they bought Nashville Super Speedway. They bought Dover. So sure enough, one of those races, one of those Dover races went to Nashville Super Speedway. And now they bought Dover. It's Dover Motor Speedway. And you just wonder, is today possibly the last NASCAR Cup Series race at Dover? I really, really hope it is. And it is such a great racetrack. But it's like my sister Jill and I, we talked earlier in the week. Because Jill and I went to Dover twice together. It was the fall of 2008. What an amazing battle between... The Roush guys that day, Greg Biffle, Matt Kenseth, Carl Edwards for the victory. Then we went there in June of 2017, obviously Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s retirement season. And little did we know that day that we would see Jimmy Johnson score the 83rd and final win of his career because a week later at Pocono Raceway, that horrible crash that he had. And obviously Jimmy has never been the same ever since. So I have so many fond memories of going there with my father in 2002 for my first race with my sister in 2008 and 2017, and then with my buddy Josh Manley in October 2018 
Brad Keselowski having a chance to win that race, getting crashed with a couple laps to go, and then Chase Elliott winning the race, and the place just going absolutely nuts like Dale Jr. had won himself. So a lot of great memories at Dover, and I just hope that there's more that will be made today in the years moving forward. Because that's the thing like Jill and I talked about last Tuesday, Nashville. What else can you say? It's It has boomed, it has blossomed into one of the top markets in the country the past five or six years. Obviously, it's country music central. It's where NASCAR has their award ceremony every year now since 2019, obviously with the exception of 2020 with the pandemic. But you know that NASCAR is targeting these larger markets like we talked about on the last show with North North Wilkesboro Speedway, losing a race to Fort Worth, Texas, losing a race to New Hampshire, obviously the New England sort of Boston market. And I'm just fearful that Dover, possibly, with Bruton and Marcus Smith buying the track, that they're going to send another race to Nashville Super Speedway, and then Dover won't be on the schedule before you know it. Because the thing is, I live in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, which is probably, I would say, maybe 45 minutes from Pocono Raceway. Think about this for a second. Going all the way back to 2017. Pocono had two races. New Hampshire had two races. Dover had two races. Watkins Glen, obviously, one race. So that's seven races in the northeast region of the country. Sure enough, New Hampshire loses the race to Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Then next thing you know, Dover loses a race to Nashville Super Speedway. And then sure enough, this year, Pocono Raceway, for the first time since 1981, just one race. Just one race on July 24th, but they lost that race to Gateway, which is the St. Louis market. So the the northeast region of the country, whether it's Pocono, Watkins Glen, New Hampshire, Dover, you have so many passionate, hardcore fans that have now had to suffer through losing so many races, like I said, New Hampshire, Dover, Pocono now. And it's honestly, it's just sad because the Northeast region has a lot of great racetracks and a lot of great fans. So, sign of the times, I guess. But obviously, Dover, no matter what, it's a, a, a track and a place that's very near and dear to my heart. So yesterday... Practice was a wild one at the Monster Mile. Tyler Reddick spun out. Josh Balicki crashed. William Byron crashed, obviously. And then Harrison Burton, Todd Gillen, they all had issues and were not able to make qualifying attempts. So the Monster Mile was definitely living up to <laughs> living up to that moniker and that hype that, that it's always had as being such a, a fearful and... <laughs> treacherous racetrack so later today the duramax drydeen 400 at dover motor speedway three o'clock on fox sports one mike joy with the call along with two-time dover bush series winner clint boyer the fall races of 2006 and 2009 and guess who is back in the booth the NASCAR and Fox booth for the first time since June 2015 at Sonoma Raceway. Larry Mack, Larry McReynolds is back in the booth where he belongs. And this isn't a shot at Jeff Gordon, but really, 
I understood that wanting to have such a big name like Jeff Gordon in your broadcast booth right after he retired at the end of 2015, I get that. But I hate that it came at the expense of Larry McReynolds, who really eats, sleeps, and breathes NASCAR, who puts so much time, so much effort, so much research into making every broadcast fun and educational. Larry, like I said, Larry has just been, when he's in the booth, man, you learn so much from Larry. And it's going to be so much fun to hear him use that old catchphrase that he well always had. You know, Daryl Waltrip, it was boogity, boogity, boogity. But with Larry McReynolds, how he would always say, he's like, reach up there and pull them belts tight one more time. So I am absolutely thrilled to have Larry McReynolds back in the booth today at Dover. So this race is 400 laps, stage one, lap 120, stage two, lap 250. Now, there is a possibility of some rain in the area. Yesterday, it was looking like rain around 2 or 3 o'clock. Now it's looking like 6 o'clock, so probably towards the end of the race. It's about a 50% chance of rain, so either it'll happen or it won't. But qualifying yesterday, on the pole for the very first time in his career is the 17 of Chris Busher. Can you believe it? Chris Busher, not only his first pole in the NASCAR Cup Series, but his first pole in any of NASCAR's top three series. That is mind-blowing in itself. And the first pole for Roush Fenway Keselowski Racing, but their first pole since May of 2017 at Talladega Super Speedway with Ricky Stenhouse Jr., but their first pole on a non-restricted plate racetrack since Ricky at Atlanta Motor Speedway in 2013. Now, Chris, he does have an Xfinity win at Dover in May of 2015, his championship season in the Xfinity Series, but his best finish here in a cup car was 14th in the Sunday race back in August of 2020. Starting second is Denny Hamlin. Denny was the winner of the Saturday race at Dover, the Dover doubleheader in August of 2020, along with two Bush Series wins at Dover, September of 2007 and May of 2008. Starting third, the number five of Kyle Larson, an absolute natural when it comes to Dover. Now, his last win with the 42 car and Chip Ganassi Racing was at Dover in October of 2019, and he did win a Bush race there in June of 2017, driving for Chip Ganassi as well. And that's the other thing. How cool that Junior Motorsports, the fifth car, the all-star car, that they're going to have the Hendrick Cup drivers and that Kyle Larson's going to do two races Watkins Glen on August 20th, Darlington on September 3rd, and then Chase Elliott. He will be driving the number 88 Junior Motorsports car this coming Saturday at Darlington Raceway. And then William Byron, two races in the car, May 21st at Texas Motor Speedway and July 16th at New Hampshire Motor Speedway. And I know a lot of people are thinking, well, what about Alex Bowman? But something just tells me that Dale Jr. will field an Xfinity car for Alex on June 25th at Nashville Super Speedway since Ally, it's the Ally 400 that weekend, and Ally is now presenting sponsor of the Dale Jr. Download. But like I said, Kyle, an absolute natural when it comes to Dover. Like I said, even though just one cup win there in October of 2019, so many laps led, so many top two and top three finishes. Look out for him today. Starting fourth is his teammate, the number nine of Chase Elliott. Like I said, Chase, he did win there in October of 2018. Plenty of top fives and plenty of laps led at Dover. 
starting fifth is the 12 of Ryan Blaney. You, you just know that Ryan is going to break through sooner or later. Then starting sixth is the defending winner of this race, Alex Bowman. Now, last year, Kyle Larson dominated this race, led almost 300 laps on the day, was in his own zip code. And then, sure enough, Eric Almirola cuts the tire down. They come on pit road for their last stop of the day. Alex beats Kyle out of the pits, and that's the difference in the end. But Alex, credit to him, he's really, really adapted well to Dover. And, of course, you think of the 48 car and all the success that Jimmy Johnson had at Dover. Now, Alex said the first year, his first full-time year with Hendrick Motorsports in 2018, he was awful at Dover. He was 23rd in the spring race and then crashed out of the fall race. So, sure enough, he went to Jimmy Johnson himself before the spring race in 2019, and he asked him, he's like, dude, how do I get around Dover? And Jimmy told him, and sure enough, it was almost like like a light switch. Alex finished second in the spring race that year to Martin Trex Jr. Then he finished third behind Larson and Trex in the fall race. And then the doubleheader weekend in 2020 got caught up in a wreck on the Saturday race. Then on Sunday, started in the back in a backup car, got a top five, and then obviously the win here last year. So credit to Alex. He definitely has Dover figured out. Starting seventh is the number one of Ross Chastain. Ross, that Dover weekend in 2020, he finished second in the Sunday Xfinity race to Chase Briscoe. And starting eighth is his teammate, the 99 of Daniel Suarez. Daniel, his championship season in the Xfinity Series in 2018, Daniel did win there at Dover and has really, really adapted well. I remember he finished third in this race back in 2018. Starting ninth is the 23 of Bubba Wallace, and Bubba is another one that has adapted so well to Dover. He led so many laps there in the truck series in 2013 with Kyle Busch Motorsports, and then in 2015 as a teammate to Chris Buescher in the Xfinity Series. Just couldn't really close the deal, and did finish second to Eric Jones in the May 2016 Xfinity race there. Bubba is really, really excited for today. He qualified ninth. He has his crew chief, Booty Barker, back after a four-race suspension when the left rear wheel came off the car at Circuit of the Americas. He said that he loves Dover. He's got a fast car, and he's excited for today. Starting 10th is somewhat of a teammate to him, the 18 of Kyle Busch. Kyle, three wins at Dover, June of 2008, May of 2010, and October of 2017. That excellent battle he had with Chase Elliott, passing him with just two laps to go. Starting 11th is the number four of Kevin Harvick. Kevin is a three-time Dover winner as well and had some struggles when he was there with Richard Childress Racing. But man, when he and Rodney Childress got together in 2014 at Stuart Haas Racing, they have flat out dominated Dover. Had so many fast cars, really should have tons of Dover wins, just had so many unfortunate circumstances. Kevin, who could ever forget the must-win situation in October of 2015, leading 355 out of 400 laps to, to win and move on to the next round, holding off Kyle Busch and Dale Earnhardt Jr. for the win. And then Kevin won here again in May of 2018 after a slow pit stop by Brad Keselowski. And then the Sunday race in August of 2020, starting 17th after they inverted the field, when Kevin finished fourth on Saturday, and dominated the race. Took him, didn't take him long to get the lead, and he won every stage in that beautiful black and silver Mobile One car. 
Starting 12th is the two of Austin Cindric. Austin won the Xfinity race at Dover last year. Starting 13th is the 15 of Ryan Priest. I mean, what else can you say? It's definitely a fifth Stewart Haas car, but Ryan was really, really strong yesterday. Starting 14th is Justin Moneymaker Haley, his first time back to Dover after having to miss the race last year because of COVID-19 protocols. Starting 15th is the 47 of Ricky Stenhouse Jr., who badly, and I mean badly, needs a good run today. Starting 16th is the 45 of Kurt Busch. Kurt, one win at Dover back in October of 2011. That ended up being his final win with Team Penske less than two months before he ended up getting fired by them. Starting 17th is the 20 of Christopher Bell. Christopher has a couple of Xfinity wins here at Dover in October of 2018 and May of 2019. Then, starting 18th, the 19 of Martin Trex Jr. from Mayetta, New Jersey. He'll be the first to tell you, instead of New Hampshire or Watkins Glen or even Pocono Raceway, Martin considers Dover to be his home track. So, two Bush Series wins there, his two championship seasons, September of 2004, June of 2005, when he was driving for Dale Earnhardt Jr., and then June 4th, 2007, the very first Cup Series win of Martin's career came at Dover, which would also end up being the final Cup Series win for Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, just a few weeks after Dale Earnhardt Jr. announced that he was going to be leaving at the end of 2007, and the rest, as we know, is history. Martin would go on to win two more times at Dover, October of 2016, and then May of 2019, another Monday race at Dover. Starting 19th is the 16 of A.J. Allmendinger. A.J. has had so many good runs at Dover. I remember the May race in 2011 when he dominated the first half of that race, only to have the engine blow. Starting 20th, the September 2012 winner at Dover, Brad Keselowski, just less than two months before his championship. And Brad also has a nationwide win there in May of 2009, driving for Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Kelly Earnhardt Miller. Brad was seventh fastest in practice yesterday. And you're thinking, how the hell can he qualify 20th and his teammate Chris Busher is on the pole? Brad tweeted after his qualifying time, he said, we were just a little too tight in qualifying. But he and Matt McCall, they worked on race runs. They worked on long green flag runs. You know you're going to get them at Dover. And Brad feels like we get some long green flag runs in today that they are going to be really, really strong. Starting 21st is the 7 of Corey LaJoy, Corey's dad, Randy. Two Bush Series wins there in his 1996 championship season. Starting 22nd in car 22, Joey Logano. Now, whoever imagined when Joey rattled off four straight nationwide wins at Dover in 2012 and 2013, whoever imagined that Dover in the Cup Series would be one of his worst tracks. He finished third there in October of 2018 behind Chase Elliott and Denny Hamlin and hardly has led any laps at Dover. So this is definitely one of the weekends to avoid Joey Logano. Starting 23rd is the 14 of Chase Briscoe. Like I said, Chase won the, the Sunday Xfinity race here in August of 2020. Starting 24th is the 3 of Austin Dillon. 25th, the 43 of Eric Jones. Like I said, the Xfinity winner there in May of 2016. Starting 27th is the number 8 of Tyler Reddick. 27th is the 10 of Eric Almirola. Eric has always run strong at Dover. 28th, the 51 of Cody Ware. 29th, the 34 of Michael McDowell. 30th is the 41 of Cole Custer. An Xfinity win there in October of 2019. 
31st is the 42 of Ty Dillon, 32nd, the 78 of BJ McLeod. And the following guys were not allowed to qualify after crashing their cars in practice yesterday. The 24 of William Byron. William finished fourth in this race last year. The first ever 1 2 3 4 for Hendrick Motorsports, Alex Bowman, Kyle Larson, Chase Elliott, and William Byron. 34th, the 38 of Todd Gillen. 35th, the 21 of Harrison Burton, whose father Jeff won here in September of 2006. And 37th is the 77 of Josh Balicki. So looking ahead to today's race, 400 laps, like I said, you have to worry a little bit about weather towards the end of the race. The biggest thing is it's concrete. And Goodyear, I know Dale Earnhardt Jr. yesterday after Josh Berry won the Xfinity race, Dale Earnhardt Jr. really wanted to commend Goodyear for the tire that they had brought. He said that it, it wore out as, as the, the, the long green flag runs progressed. You were able to move up. You were able to get that upper groove working like we know Kyle Larson will be doing it at some point sooner or later in this race. So that's the thing that I look for is just long green flag runs at some point, the tire, the tire wear, and how that rubber is going to be building right into the concrete. I wouldn't even be surprised if NASCAR brought the jet dryers out during a few caution flags just to blow all that rubber off. And more than anything, pit road. Pit road is so tight at Dover, and you have to watch your speed. Brad Keselowski. <laughs> I love you, man, but I just had to get one dig in there. But pit road speed at Dover, you're talking 30 miles an hour down that pit road. So you have to watch your speed. You have to watch when you're pulling out of your pit. You know, earlier this morning, I was feeling a little nostalgic, and I watched that September 2002 race at Dover, just seeing how tight of an angle guys like Dale Earnhardt Jr., Rusty Wallace, Ryan Newman, when they were when they were coming off a of pit road, it is definitely one of the most, arguably the most narrow pit road in all of NASCAR. So I look for the long green flag runs, and I look for the outside. Now, obviously, we know the choose rule. If it was up to me, obviously, Chris Bisher being the control car at the start, I would definitely want to take the outside. When I look at the restarts, no matter who's going to be leading, I would definitely take the outside. Just that speed and that momentum and how that upper groove is going to be worked in. So, who am I going with today? Obviously, as great of a story as it is, Chris Buescher, the first pole of his career. Obviously, I don't really see him being a factor at the end of this race. I think Chris will lead a few laps early on, but sort of fade. Denny Hamlin, like I said, Denny has got to get his season turned around. I think Denny will definitely be strong. But as far as an organization, what else can you say? Hendrick Motorsports. Their record at Dover speaks for itself, obviously. The one, two, three, four last year with Bowman, Larson, Elliott, and Byron. And even before that, like I said, Jimmy Johnson, the 11 wins at Dover. Jeff Gordon won there five times. Chase Elliott has won there. You know, Ricky Rudd won there. I mean, Jeff Bodine won there. Like, this has been a phenomenal track for Hendrick Motorsports, Dover. But I look at the trio, because I know William Byron starting in 33rd. William is going to have his work cut out for him, and hopefully he can make his way to the front quick and not get lapped early on. But that Hendrick trio of Larson, Elliott, and Bowman, I would not be shocked whatsoever if they ended up finishing 1-2-3 at the end of the day. But as far as a dark horse... Look at the 99 of Daniel Suarez. Like I said, the Xfinity win there in his 2016 championship season. 
And look at all the strong runs he had there, 2017, 2018, when he finished third in that spring race there. I definitely look for Daniel to be a factor. And it wouldn't surprise me one bit to see Kevin Harvick, maybe at some point today look like the Kevin Harvick of old, just barely missed out on the top 10 in qualifying. But Kevin said that he's very, very confident in the setup that he and Rodney Childers have in their car. And just like Brad Keselowski and Matt McCall, I feel like if Kevin and Brad, if they could get some long green flag runs, and and you know that it's going to happen at some point today, that I feel like those two could definitely, in Brad's case, definitely surprise some people. But I would not be shocked to see Kevin definitely look like his old self at Dover at some point. Now, and even Brad's old car, the two of Austin Cindric, you know, Austin... Everyone knows Austin as a road course driver, and man, whoever thought that he would become a Daytona 500 champion. But as far as ovals go, Austin has said that probably his favorite oval to race on, obviously aside from Phoenix when he won the champ, the Xfinity Championship there in 2020, but he said probably his favorite oval to race on is Dover. Like, he has adapted so well to Dover. But the ultimate, and I mean the ultimate dark horse for today, is the 15 Orion Priest. He was sixth fastest in practice, just missed out on the top 10 in qualifying. And I remember how, how strong Ryan Priest ran in the Bush Clash when it was at the LA Coliseum. So I would look out for, for those guys, absolutely. But when it's all said and done, my pick to go to victory lane. I see these guys finishing 1-2, talking about Larson and Chase Elliott. But this is the kind of day and this is the kind of track that I think today is the kind of race that a lot of people have been expecting Kyle Larson to have this year. I could see Kyle possibly winning both stages. I could see him leading over 200 laps today. So Kyle Larson, our defending NASCAR Cup Series champion, is my pick to go to victory lane today at Dover Motor Speedway. As I said... I think that it's going to be dominated by Hendrick Motorsports. I think it's going to be dominated by Chevrolet. I think Daniel Suarez, I wouldn't be surprised to see him get up there and lead some laps and you know, probably finish anywhere from about maybe fourth to, to sixth. As far as Ford goes, like I said, that trio of Kevin Harvick, Austin Sendrick, and Brad Keselowski, I think that they're going to surprise some people today. But yeah, Kyle Larson, my pick to go to victory lane today at Dover Motor Speedway. So that will do it for episode 102 of Jake's Take. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Enjoy the race today. And next weekend, we, we, blah, blah, blah. we will be previewing NASCAR's throwback weekend at Darlington Raceway. Y'all take it easy.